right, so let's begin. This is lesson number two of Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. And tonight's class is one of those classes that I think you will remember for a very, very long time, which is why I said you've picked the right thing to do here on a Tuesday night at 8 p.m. So they tell a story of two Jews sitting on a park bench in Nazi Germany. And one is reading the Jewish newspaper and one is reading the Nazi anti-Semitic newspaper. And the one reading the Jewish paper turns to the other reading the propaganda. He says, why are you reading this Nazi garbage? Why are you reading the propaganda? So the guy says, it's simple. It's simple. When I read the Jewish newspaper, all he hears about the Tsarists. You know what Tsarists are? You guys know what Tsarists are? Tsarists are the problems, right? The problems, what's wrong, the troubles, the trials, the travails, the difficulties. But when I read the Nazi paper, when I read the anti-Semitic newspaper, I read how we control the banks, how we control the world media, how we control the international governments. And that's, uh, that's the mes message that I hear. Okay, so that's one anecdote. Second anecdote. Tell a story about two Jews who are walking one day and they pass by a church. They pass by a church and uh, they see a sign outside. And what does the sign say? The sign says, convert today to Christianity and you'll get $1,000. So one Jew turns to the other and says, hey, look, I could use the cash. I'm a bit low in cash. I think I'm going to take him up on the offer. He goes in. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half. Finally, after two hours, he comes out. Fellow turns to the other guy that was just that came out, the guy that was waiting outside. He waited outside the whole time. He says to him, Yankel, so new? How was it? Did they give you $1,000? He turns to him and says, ah, you Jews, always interested in the money. It's always about the money with you guys. Okay. All right, Jerry, we we're waiting for the rim shop. Are you saying it's not even worthy? No, it's not even worthy of it. Okay, all right, all right. All right, I, I apologize in advance for the terrible joke. Okay, so we have an incredible class tonight that's going to seek to get to the heart of anti-Semitism. It's going to seek to get to the heart and the, the essence of what anti-Semitism is about and, and why it exists, why it persists, and what we can do about it. But first, before we begin... The content, I need to say a special thank you to our core sponsors, Alex and Laura Doman, Dr. Joy Maxey, Howard Feinsand. Thank you very much for sponsoring the learning. Thank you all for participating in the learning. So let's jump in. Last week, we spoke about the danger of the fear and the panic when thinking about anti-Semitism. Yes, anti-Semitism is a problem that we must deal with, but to deal with it, we have to be level-headed, we have to think rationally. We have to be strategic in our response to anti-Semitism. And, and that demands from us clear-headed thinking. We also set forth strategies for minimizing our fear and our panic by talking about the Jewish values of trust and faith in God. We talked about specific strategies and meditations for hopefully augmenting our faith and trust in God. And then we talked about, finally, the interplay between trust and action, how even though together with our trust and faith in God, we also have to act and have to do. And that is the ultimate combination of faith and trust on the one side 
and action, advocacy, education, and, and, and all of the other things that we need to do on the other side. And we saw how Queen Esther and the story of Purim perfectly embodied this balance between trust in Hashem, trust in God, as well as diplomacy and action. All right, so this week, this week we take a look and take a deep dive into the heart of anti-Semitism. What lies at the core of this hate? What lies at the core of anti-Semitism? What's the basis for this age-old hate? And most importantly, what can you and I do about it? Friends, this class is all about examining the psychology of hate. What makes hate tick? The answers may surprise you, but my bigger hope is that the ideas we speak about tonight not surprise you, but inspire you. We have an incredible discussion, so let's jump into the conversation. All right, so I wanna begin by hearing from you. I'm gonna to toss the question to you guys. Feel free to unmute, and I'll ask you a simple question. What are the roots of anti-Semitism? Where does this hate originate from? Where does anti-Semitism come from? Jump in. Christ killer, okay, what else? Origins of anti-Semitism. Jump in, jump in, no need, no need to be polite, just jump right in. That's Susan. Uh, that could be, that is Susan. Ray, jump in, yes. Jealousy. Jealousy, okay. Okay, good, Nanette. Um, it, it really, has always been there, but I think the Inquisition was a major pivotal point. Okay, Inquisition, good. Okay. Before that, I believe. Okay. Okay. What else? What else? What Origins what? of anti-Semitism. Impression that different we're better customs. than others. Uh, hold on. I think you both said almost the same thing. Did you both say the difference or impression that we're different than others? Yes. Wow. Okay. We're better than. Better than. Different. Okay. Chosen. Chosen. What do they call the Jew from Jews from Alaska? The frozen chosen. The frozen <laughs> chosen. Legit. That's legit. Okay. That's legit. What else? What else? Other rationales, origins of anti not rational origins of anti-Semitism. Let's go. Controlling the global economy, Okay. 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 All right, good. What else? Well, the Catholic Church is behind a lot of it. Okay. Uh, the I, church. I, I, could I say something? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that maybe it starts out when, um, when uh, uh, Yaakov gave his, who I, wait, Yitzchak gave Yaakov, yeah, yeah, Yitzchak gave Yaakov the, the, the bracha and the blessing oh. instead of Esau, and Esau got really, really upset. So you're saying when Jacob takes the blessings of Esau, when he takes the blessings, so that begins kind of the, the hate toward, toward the Jacob and, and the family. Okay, okay. I think, but, I mean, you asked for oranges. Right. You know, I'm going way back. Okay, good, good. But maybe even before then, when, when, I, when, Abraham, when Abraham kicked, kicked his son out, <laughs> Okay. Shmuel's out. Okay. Even back then. Okay, good. Okay. What else? What else? Origins. Origins of anti-Semitism. What about the notion that we had this uh, perception or, or use of morality 
that nobody else had. Okay, good. Use of morality. Good, good. What else? What else? Ignorance, ignorance fear, and insecurity. Ignorance, fear, and security. Okay, good, good. Uh, by the way, when I say good, I don't mean good to all these things. I'm saying, <laughs> thanks, thanks for sharing. Okay, good. What else? I, I think it's the perception that Jews consider themselves morally um, superior. And it's, oh, it's yeah. not correct, but, but I think that the Gentiles look at it that way. Got it, okay. That we, that we, we think we're better. Got it, okay, good. Fine. So let's let let's, let me share a few a few insights into this. So I think many people, and it was mentioned it was mentioned as well. I think Adina Malka mentioned it. The idea of a religious origin of anti-Semitism. So a, a lot of people are under the impression that anti-Semitism begins with the rise of Christianity and the and the notion that Jews um, killed Christ, and and that's kind of where things go downhill, and and anti-Semitism snowballs from there. What's interesting is that we find clear sources, very clear sources for anti-Semitism using the same types of false narratives, the same anti-Semitic tropes that we, we've heard over the centuries. We've, we see sources that speak of this that are ancient sources that predate the rise of Christianity. I think this will be surprising for many of us here tonight. Um, when, we, when we look at and explore some of these texts, these are texts that go back thousands of years, and literally, it sounds like it's out of any standard anti-Semitic rant, you know, blaming Jews and putting down Jews for classic things that Jews have been falsely accused of throughout history. But again, the point of this is that it predates the rise of Christianity. Thousands of years old. So let's go to the sources. I have two sources to share with you. The first source dates back to the first century, and it's from the writings of Tacitus, the great senator and historian of the Roman Empire. Tacitus lived in the first century, as I mentioned, and he, um, he, which is well before the establishment of Christianity as a religion, as a movement. And he writes about, he's a historian, and he writes about the Roman conquest of Jerusalem. And in the middle of talking about the Roman conquest of Jerusalem, he decides to talk about the history of the Jewish people, right? As a historian, if he's writing about the Roman conquest of Jerusalem and the Jewish people, he decides to write about the history of the Jewish people. And as you'll see, it's a twisted and fabricated narrative that he writes, filled with, again, anti-Semitic tropes. So as, and I'm going to read this text, a bit of a long text, and I, I, I want to read it. As I read this text, text number one, I want you to identify as many anti-Semitic stereotypes as you can. If you want to write them down, make a note, or just remember it in your mind, either way is fine. If you have a book, you can open up your book, please, to page number, page 48, 48. page 48. Um, otherwise, I am going to... Put it up here on the screen. Give me a quick moment. Okay. Let me get my PDF in the right position. And here we go. Okay. Thank you for your patience. Okay, so here's Tacitus slandering the Jews. Remember, he's writing about the Roman conquest 
of Jerusalem, and mitamal, in the middle of it, he decides to, to talk about the history of the Jewish people vis-a-vis Egypt. Listen to this. Listen to this fabrication. Once during a plague in Egypt, which caused bodily disfigurement, King Bacchus, I think maybe, approached the oracle of Ammon and asked for a remedy, whereupon he was told to purge his kingdom and transport this race, this race meaning the Jewish people, into other lands since it was hateful to the gods. Okay? So the Hebrews were searched out and gathered together, then being abandoned in the desert while all others lay idle and weeping. Only one of the exiles, Moses by name, warned them not to hope for help from gods or men, for they were deserted by both, but to trust to themselves. The Jews, regarded as pro- the Jews regard as profane all that we hold sacred. On the other hand, they permit all that we abhor. They first chose to rest on the seventh day, but after a time they were led by the charms of indolence to give over the seventh year as well to inactivity. The other customs of the Jews are base and abominable and owe their persistence to their depravity. For the worst rascals among other peoples renouncing their ancestral religions always kept sending tribute and contributions to Jerusalem, thereby increasing the wealth of the Jews. Again, the Jews are extremely loyal toward one another and always ready to show compassion. But toward every other people, they feel only hate and, and enmity. So this is the end of the rant of Tacitus. Of course, this is a very interesting spin on the history. He says there was a plague in Egypt, and to get rid of the plague, they sent out the Jews. So that's like a, a little plot twist over there. But I asked you, I gave you work while I read that. I did the reading, and I gave you the work to think about if you can identify the anti-Semitic tropes. So what did you identify? Unmute and jump in. False news. Say it again. False news. False news, a.k.a. fake news? Yeah. Okay, good. That's general. Good. Give me specifics. What are some specifics? Specific lies, anti-Semitic stereotypes. Jump in. Everybody, just jump in. The Jews are regard very- sacred as regard as profane everything we hold sacred, and vice versa. Sacred, profane, profane, sacred. Good, mom. The uh, the secretiveness and okay. the and the, and the exclusions. Oh, the exclusion. Good, good, good. What else? And Action for money. Money asking for money. Good. What else? Taking a year to rest. Taking a year to rest. Who does that? Laziness. What else? Anti-Semitic stereotypes. Huh? Loyalty only within the... Loyalty within the ranks. Good. What else? Support for Jerusalem. Support for Jerusalem. Good. Anything else? Anything else you identified? Did did, did someone say... Did did someone say that they... That that the Jews... It's us against them mentality. Did somebody yeah. Yeah. Say uh, maybe not. Maybe not exactly like that. That's good. 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 What else? Somebody said something else. Increasing the wealth. Depravity. Depravity. Increasing wealth. Okay. Let's. I, I. I put together a list of twelve stereotypes. You ready? Twelve stereotypes. I listen. I. I prepared for this, so I have twelve stereotypes. Here we go. Number one. Number one is blaming the Jews for a nation's problems. We have a problem. Who's at fault? The Jews. I mean, aside from the fact what Adina Maka said, this is 
fake news altogether. But right, even within the genre of, of what the narrative is, right, we have a problem, let's blame the Jews. And specifically, what's number two, what's the problem? A plague. Ooh, a plague. And who's the problem? Who's causes the plague? Who's the problem with the plague? It's the Jews that are causing the plague. That's the second stereotype. Um, number three, Jews are weak and fearful. Remember, they were panicking, except for Moses, the one slave that didn't panic. Okay. Next, number four, Jews are hated by people. Number five, Jews are hated and abandoned by God. Uh, you know, I feel like maybe I should put this up on the screen. Maybe. Maybe you guys can see it. Um, yeah. So the problem is the Jews. The plague is the Jews. Um, Jews are weak and fearful, right? They lay idle and weeping. They were fearful. Jews are hated by people. They are abandoned by, right, by men, abandoned by God. That's number five. Number six, Jews are different in every way from us. It's us versus them. Whatever's profane is sacred. Whatever's sacred is profane. In other words, there's that, that, that othering that, that happens. Jewish ways, ways are depraved. It's just, they're just wrong, abominable, etc. Jews mooch off of others. Right? Others send them wealth. They mooch off of their steel. They take others' wealth. Jews are obsessed with money. Right? Increasing the wealth of the Jews. It's about Jews and money. Jews are insular. They're loyal to only to one another. Um, and that 10 is insular. 11 is loyal to one another. Only to one another. And number 12, finally, Jews hate everyone who's not Jewish. Uh, sound familiar? These are 12 stereotypes. Sound familiar? Yes? I mean, this has been the story. It's always been the story. Recurring. What's, but again, what I want to clarify here is... You know, I asked before, what are the origins of anti-Semitism? And, and there were a lot of really um, powerful responses and a lot of stories and even some biblical stories. But here we see, this is actually, according to historians, the first, the original ancient, the, 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 the oldest ancient source and text um, that speaks to classic anti-Semitism. It's not brothers fighting against each other, which could happen in any family. It's not brothers even hating each other, which could happen in, in a family. This is specific, uh, identifiable anti-Semitic tropes. Are you with me? Jews are obsessed with money. They're obsessed with power. They're weak, but they're strong. They're, they're much money. And all of that stuff. It's the classic, classic, classic anti-Semitic tropes. And what's the origin? This is, this is the first appearance. And it exists before the rise of Christianity. This is before Christianity is the thing. Before, right, that, that's not, you can't attribute that to this. This, is, this exists already before that. Now, I want to share with you a second text, also dating to that first century. This is from the historian Josephus. Now, Josephus was a Jew. Josephus, Yosephun. Josephus was, that was his Jewish name. Josephus was a Jewish Roman historian. He was Jewish. When Rome conquered Jerusalem, he aligned, let me mute everybody so you have a nice clean background. When Jerusalem was, uh, was, was sacked, was conquered by the Romans, so Josephus decided to align himself with Rome, not to become Roman, but he decided to work for the Romans because they were hiring. He was a historian, he was a good writer, and so that's it. He got a job and got some safety to boot. Anyway, he wrote many works, um, The Antiquities of the Jews. Anyway, one of the works that he wrote was against, um, against Apion. And there, in, in, in that work, he rails against this fellow, um, this fellow Apion, who was an anti-Semite, a Jew hater. He was a Hellenized Egyptian philosopher who lived at the time, and apparently he would write these, he would go on these anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish diatribes. So Josephus wrote a response, wrote a book, wrote a work called Against Apion, 
where he, where he challenges Apion. Now, we don't actually have works that, that survived from Apion himself, but we have Josephus's rebuttals to Apion. Are you with me on this? Yes? So we have, we can understand what Apion wrote through Josephus's rebuttal. So let's, let's, let's look at that inside. This is going to be text number two. You have the book. If you have the book, then you have it. I'm going to put it up on the screen either way, and I'm going to read this as well. This is page 50 in your books, text number two, from Josephus against Apion. They tell lies, says Josephus. They, the Jew haters, tell lies and invent absurd calumnies about our temple without showing any consciousness of, imp of impiety. Yet to high-minded men, nothing is more disgraceful than a lie of any description, but above all, on a subject of a temple of worldwide fame and commanding sanctity. Essentially, what Joseph Josephus says is, they lie about us, but they dragged our temple into the lies, and that's the worst. Let's continue. Within the sanctuary, Apian has the effrontery, the chutzpah, to assert that the Jews kept an ass's head, Worshipping that animal and deeming it worthy of the deepest reverence, the fact was disclosed, he maintains, on the occasion of the spoliation, spoliation of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, when the head made of gold and worth a high price was discovered. In other words, he's referencing the Hanukkah story. The Hanukkah story. When the, the temple during the Second, second Temple era was ransacked by the... by the... Um, uh, by the... by the... Um, the Syrian Greeks, and, and they came and they took out some stuff from the temple. So the claim is, again, it's a, it's a false claim, that what was in the temple, a golden head of a donkey. I mean, seriously. Now, so, so Josephus writes, now how did it escape him, Apian, that the facts convict him of telling an incredible lie? How could he say such a thing? Let's continue. He adds, Apian adds a second story of Greek origin which is a malicious slander upon us from beginning to end. In their anxiety to defend Antiochus, which was, the again, the Greek king, they have further invented, the Syrian Greek king, they have further invented to discredit us, to discredit us the fictitious story which follows. Apian, who is there the spokesman of others, asserts that, and quote, this is a quote from Apian, Antiochus found in the temple a couch on which a man was reclining. Listen to this. The king's entry was instantly hailed by him, by the man that was reclined with adoration, as about to procure him profound relief. F falling at the king's knees, he stretched out his right hand and implored him to set him free. He said, said the man reclining on the couch, that he was a Greek, and that while traveling about the province for his livelihood, he was suddenly kidnapped by men of a foreign race and conveyed to the temple. There he was shut up and seen by nobody, but was fattened on feasts of the most lavish description. At first, these unlooked-for attentions deceived him and caused him pleasure. Suspicion followed, then consternation. Finally, on consulting the attendants who waited upon him, he heard of the unutterable law of the Jews for the sake of which he was being fed. The practice was repeated annually at a fixed season. They would kidnap a Greek foreigner, fatten him up for a year, and then lead him to a certain wood where they slew him, sacrificed his body with their customary ritual, partook of his flesh, and while immolating the Greek, swore an oath of enmity to the Greeks. The remains of their victim were then thrown into a pit. The man stated that he had now but a few days left to live and implored the king out of respect for the gods of Greece to defeat this Jewish plot upon his lifeblood and to deliver him from, this, from his miserable predicament. And I ask you a very simple question. What does this sound like? What anti-Semitic trope does this sound like? Jump in. The blood libel. The blood libel. This is the blood. Now, we think, when did the blood libels begin? Oh, like the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages in Europe, that's when the blood libels began. The blood libels were essentially, for those unfamiliar with the blood libels, first of all, 
it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good to not, to not know these things, um, perhaps, but what's the blood libel? Blood libel was Christians claim, usually Christians, claiming that, that um, Christians claiming that Jews, for their holiday observance and their rituals, like for baking matzah, etc., kidnap a Christian child and murder the child, and use the blood in the matzah. Now, if you've ever been to a matzah bakery, oh my gosh, you should only see the extent that this, walk into any matzah bakery, and you'll see how precise, I, I don't even know why I'm defending it, you know, water and flour, and that's it. Water and flour, garnish. You can't come in with anything. They will kick you out faster than you can say, shalom, right? You're done. So the notion is absurd, but we think it begins with Christians and with oppression, religious oppression. Here we have a text, 2,000 years old, that precedes Christianity, and what's at the heart of Apian's anti-Semitism? I don't know the heart of it, but what's the claim? A blood libel, a blood libel. They kidnap Greeks, they fatten them up for a year, and they sacrifice them in this elaborate ritual. Are you kidding me? Hansel and Gretel. Are you, yeah, are you kidding me? I mean, that's what's going on. That's, that's the lie. That's, that's the trope. That's the, that's the, that's the stereotype. This is crazy. But here's the point of all this. The point is that uh, hatred against Jews is as ancient as it is absurd. <laughs> I mean, it's, how old is this? This is thousands of years old. I mean, these are the first recordings, right, of such. That doesn't mean this is when it began, this is, these are the first texts that we have. The, according to historians, these are the first clearly anti-Semitic texts, sources that we have. So it's ancient and it's absurd. And we can't conveniently hang, you know, anti-Semitism on any one religion. This precedes religion, precedes other religions. And this absurd hatred, as we know, tragically continues to this day. Remember 9-11? Yeah? Remember 9-11? Remember the conspiracy theories behind 9-11? Yeah? That, that, that dragged in Jews into it? Take a look at text number three. Take a look at text number three. Um, I may have cut off the last part of that, uh, of that text, but I think we got, we got the main point from Josephus. Okay, here we go. This is text number three. Um, from Phyllis Goldstein, A Convenient Hatred, The History of Antisemitism, Facing History and Ourselves Foundation, a fabulous foundation that, is, uh, that does a lot of work in the educational field. Okay, um, Charna, are you up to reading? All right, amazing. Please unmute and jump right in. Okay, conspiracy theories are rarely logical. It is not surprising then that even as Al-Qaeda took credit for the September 11 attacks, the, groups, the group did nothing to stop a rumor claiming that the Jews were really responsible. The rumor alleged that Israel, specifically Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, was behind the plot and had warned the Jews not to go to work at the World Trade Center on the day of the attacks. On September 18, an editor for a website known as the Information Times posted a message claiming that the terrorist government of Israel cannot be ruled out as a suspect. 
The editor did not identify a motive or provide evidence in support of his allegation. In his words, he was simply raising a reasonable question. Five days later, Al-Manar, a TV station based in Lebanon, stated that Mossad had indeed warned 4,000 Jews who worked at the World Trade Center to stay home on September 11. Within days, that rumor appeared in newspapers and electronic mailing lists around the world. People continued to believe the lie, despite the fact that about 18% of the known dead were identified in obituaries as Jews. Thank you. And what, what I find, you know, this is a, it's a, it's a compelling text. And I, I don't even like uh, the fact that it ends with like a justification. It wasn't us. It wasn't Jews. Look, 18% of the, the, those dead were, that's, that's even like answering it. Like it deserves uh, an answer. Al Qaeda claimed responsibility and the Jews get dragged in. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's Meshuggah. It's crazy. Um, but I, I love how the website is known as the Information Times. Any website that calls itself the Information Times sounds dodgy, right? It sounds dodgy to you, to me. All right, to me it sounds dodgy. I would not trust that as far as I could throw it. Now, Tom, jump in. Uh, because you mentioned Tacitus and the origins uh, historically before any religious, uh, what language did Tacitus write in? Because many times translations are difficult, and I just wanted to ask, informationally what was the main language that he wrote that's a really great question um let's see if i can find this in my notes here i don't know he's one of the greatest roman chroniclers his two major works the annals and the histories cover an 80-year period of the roman empire what did he write it in? What language? I'm not sure. Text one is coming from Cornelius Tacitus, The Histories, Book 5, published by Cambridge, uh, Harvard University Press in 1931. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the original was. We could probably Google it um, and check it out. Maybe it's got it over there. But I, I'm, I have to say I'm not sure the original language. Thank you. Sure. Okay. So what we have here is a modern, what we have here is a modern um, example of these bold-faced lies of the absurdity of anti-Semitism, dragging Jews into things that are completely not related. And, and it reminds us, again, of Tacitus, of saying, you know, there was a plague, and because of the plague, who was responsible? The Jews, right? We had this, we had this before in history, so we had this other times in history, and the truth is, even COVID-19, COVID-19, there were groups that were going around the internet and saying that who caused COVID-19? The Jews. In fact, in fact, we are partnering with American Jewish Committee, AJC, in this course. In fact, we're going to have a representative from AJC uh, share a few words about advocacy and, and what we can do to help at the end of the fourth lesson in a few weeks. And the AJC not the AJC, which is the Atlanta General Constitution, but the other AJC, American Jewish Committee, um, published in May of 2020 a list, a comprehensive list of all of the sources that are blaming the Jews for COVID-19. You can look it up. You can Google it and find it yourself. So what I'm saying is that this idea, the absurdity of anti-Semitism, 
blaming the Jews for the world's problems, blaming the Jews for things that go wrong, blaming the Jews for plague and illness and devastation and destruction is nothing new. It's ancient. And tragically and absurdly, it exists to this very day. And the absurdity of anti-Semitism is highlighted by the contradictory rationales given by Jew haters. So I want to share with you another text. This text, this is a quote from Rabbi Menachem Zemba. Rabbi Menachem Zemba was the chief rabbi of Warsaw, Poland, at the time of World War II. In fact, he was shot and murdered by the Nazis in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. So just to give you a sense of when he lived and uh, the time period that we're talking about. Rabbi Zemba writes about anti-Semitism and the paradox that is anti-Semitism, and I will read this one, text number four. There are those who seek to identify legitimate causes for the hatred of Jews. However, reality has shown that there is no legitimate reason. Anti-Semitism has no justifiable cause. The haters simply choose to hate God's people. This is demonstrated by the fact that Jews are hated for being capitalists and also for being socialists. They're hated because they are overly ambitious and sharp-minded and also because they are indolent and parasitic. They're hated because they are too religious and conservative and also because they advance progressive and secular ideas. The reasons for this hatred are consistently contradictory and have not an ounce of logic behind them. And here Rabbi Zemba is stating a powerful truth about anti-Semitism. In addition to the absurdities that we mentioned before, the bold-faced lies that we've chronicled from ancient sources, we also have the reality that the rationales, the stated rationales for anti-Semitism have always been contradictory. Why hate the Jew? Because they're capitalists. Why hate the Jew? Because they're socialists. Huh, which one? Hate the Jew, why? Because they're rich. Hate the Jew because they're poor. Hate the Jew because they're separate. Hate the Jew because they're trying to infiltrate. You see what's going on here? Yeah? And when you have something that has every reason and it's opposite, you know one thing. It's not about the reason. The reasons are absurd. The reasons for anti-Semitism are contradictory. The, the hatred is age old. So here's what we know about anti-Semitism. It's ancient, it's nonsensical, it's contradictory, it's unjustifiable, and it's absurd. The problem with hate that's completely irrational and absurd is that it's tricky to respond to. Think about it, right? If, it's, if, if you're dealing with a rational challenge, you can, you can work with it or work against it in a rational way. But here you're dealing with something that is unreasonable, and irrational, so how do you respond? Think about it. Think about this. You can't exactly reason your way out of something unreasonable. You can't reason your way or argue your way out of unreasonable fear and hate. I'll give you an example. Take the concept of conspiracy theories. Take conspiracy theories as an example. Right? Go and try to debunk a conspiracy theory to a person who believes in the conspiracy, right? So you, you, you present evidence. You say, look, I know you believe in this conspiracy theory, but I want to tell you it's conspiracy theory. It's not true. You believe it as truth. I'm telling you it's not true. And to prove it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come armed with facts on my side. <laughs> facts. You know what happens when you come with facts to the conspiracy theorists? You become part of the conspiracy. Yeah? You're now the conspiracy. Oh, you're on that side. So you're part of the whole conspiracy. So, 
what are you going to do, right? I mean, that's the way conspiracy theories work. Um, they ain't going to listen to you. You're part of the conspiracy at this point. So you can show them evidence from today to tomorrow, but someone who wants to believe in it will believe in it. So Deborah Lipstadt, who we all know, right, the famous Emory professor, historian, Holocaust expert, etc. Deborah Lipstadt writes about this. She calls this something that has a self-sealing quality. Very powerful text. Let's read this. Adina Malka, if you're up to reading, I'd love for you to read this one. You can find this one in the book on page, hold on, page 56 or right here on the screen. All right, Adina Malka, if you're up to it, take it away, please. Self-sealing quality. It is hard, if not impossible, to explain something that is essentially irrational, delusional, and absurd. That is the nature of all conspiracy theories of which anti-Semitism is just one. Think about it, why do some people insist that the moon landings took place on a stage set some <laughs> someplace in the American West? Despite the existence of reams of scientific and personal evidence to the contrary, they believe this because they subscribe to the notion that the government and other powerful entities are engaged in vast conspiracies to fool the public. If we were to provide these conspiracy theorists with evidence that proves the landing was indeed on the moon, they would a priori dismiss what we say and assume we are part of the conspiracy to try to defeat an irrational supposition especially when it is firmly held by its proponents with a rational explanation, is virtually impossible. Any information that does not correspond with the conspiracy theorists' preferred social, political, or ethnic narrative is ipso facto false. Social scientists have described such theories as having a self-sealing quality that makes them particularly immune to challenge. Thank you very much. That I, I, so I, everything Deborah Lipstadt writes or says, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. So, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful text, right? How do you reason with the conspiracy theorists? I, I mean, what are you going to say? It's not true. <laughs> they believe it's true. What are you going to say? How, how, do you, how do you argue your way out of it? How do you say, no, let me show you the evidence. Your evidence is doesn't begin, right? Your evidence is part of the conspiracy. So why am I, watch, why am I, why am I paying attention to your, to your evidence? Your evidence is not evidence. It's part of the lie. So here's the point. The point is, when dealing with anti-Semitism, because she writes this about conspiracy theories in her book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, that came out a few years ago, just in 2019. So uh, the, the, the context here is anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is absurd. It's irrational. It makes no sense. Oh, Jews caused... The plagues, 9-11, COVID, I, what, are we what are we saying even? Not we, but what's, what, what are they saying? Jews are this and that and controlling this and that. The whole thing is ridiculous. Nervous then, but what, but what is it? It's, it, it, it? it's irrational and absurd. But how do you argue against it? What are you going to say? It's not true. <laughs> they believe it. The anti-Semite believes it. So what are you going to say? It's not, so you're going to show evidence. Evidence. I have evidence. It's not true. Evidence. Your evidence is fake. That's, what, that's going to be the response. How do you prove it? It's got a self-sealing quality. When you believe it, you believe that everything else is a lie. So now what? So the point is like this. 
it's hard to defeat an irrational supposition with a rational argument, with a rational explanation. You're fighting irrationality with rationality, and it's, it, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a good fit. Now, here's the point. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. It doesn't mean that we should give up and say, all right, anti-Semites will be anti-Semites. We're going home. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. It doesn't mean we shouldn't put the truth out there. It doesn't mean we shouldn't advocate. It doesn't mean we shouldn't call out those that, that, that continuously lie about the Jewish people and Judaism. That has to happen. We have to advocate and we have to make noise. We need to do these things. But even as we do, we have to also recognize that anti-Semitism is irrational and an absurd belief, and it's going to be very difficult to fight against because we're dealing with what's essentially an asymmetrical battle. It's, it's an asymmetrical battle. It's, it's, it's using facts, logic, and truth against something that's not factual, logical, or true. So, <laughs> so, so what's going on? If somebody comes honestly and says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm open to, uh, to learning about the facts, that's one conversation. Somebody says, I know what's going on, I know you're lying, and this and that, so, 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 so then where's it going to go? So I just wanted to say it's uh, it's like alternative universes, right? And that makes it very difficult to have a conversation with an anti-Semite or with and try to argue for why what they're believing in is not actually factual. It's it's a conversation that sometimes can't even begin. Then, yeah, sorry. yeah, Bill, jump in. You know, flipping the script and having them prove, which they don't won't do or need to do because they feel that it's factual, but rather than trying to make an argument with rationale, have them try to explain their side. Right. Good. Right. And they'll yeah. say, and they'll say, we don't need to explain it because everyone knows it. I mean, right. I mean, that's good. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not answering for them. I'm just saying that it's a very, it's a very strange situation. It's a very strange yeah. idea, notion, and it becomes very challenging when, when dealing with, which reminds us of something that we probably should have said at the outset of this course, but I'll say it now. The term anti-Semitism itself is a bit of a dangerous term. Do you know where that term comes from? The term anti-Semitism was coined by an, by an anti-Semite. And you know why it was coined by an anti-Semite? It was coined as an ism. At, to grant this hate, irrational hate, the credence of a right. philosophy, right. of a right. philosophy and an ideology and an ism. It was coined to give it some sort of validation right. in the platform of ideas when at the core, it's a completely irrational, absurd hate. That's it. So uh, let me share my screen with you. And, and I'm going to read this one. Take a look at text number six. Right? Let's understand where the phrase anti-Semitism actually comes from. Take a look at this. Take a look. Mar Wilhelm. Yeah, 1818 to 1904. The German, he was a German writer, po political theorist, and agitator. That's quite the uh, description. In 1879, Marr founded the Anti-Semites League, the first organization devoted exclusively to promoting political anti-Semitism. Marr's organization reflected his secular racism, which existed inconsistently alongside his religious anti-Semitism. His self-proclaimed goal was to free Christianity from the yoke of Judaism. Marr coined the term anti-Semitismus or anti-Semitism, which for him denoted a secular racial hatred of Jews. He used the word anti-Semitism to make Jew hatred seem rational, sanctioned by science, 
polite. That last line is honestly why I'm reading this. The last line is reminding us that the word anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism is designed and coined, originates, was created by, an anti by a Jew hater to make hating Jews irrationally sound rational, sanctioned by science, and polite. And in truth, we have to know what it is. Anti-Semitism is simply Jew hatred that is absurd, irrational, and evil. In Yiddish, we would call it rishos. You know what rishos means? Evil, despicable, horrific, horrible, and wrong. It's rishos. It's not anti-Semitism. It's not an ism. It's not a philosophy. It's not founded on a, on a belief. It's hate, straight up, pure hate, pure evil. Now, this is, this is um, a very important point. Nanette, jump in. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, no, no. no. You're good. You're good. I'm, I'm transitioning into a new, a new point. I, I lived in New York State until I, until I was 40. And then I moved to Atlanta. I spent 20 years in Atlanta. Now I'm living in Texas. So I've seen both sides of the coin. In New York, I never questioned. Nobody ever questioned who I was, whether what religion I was. It was, it was a very different life. When I moved to Atlanta, I experienced anti-Semitism for the first time. And it was very eye-opening to me. I know I have a lot of Christian friends, okay? And even within the Christian community, there's many different philosophies. You know, within, within their own community, there's all different types of Christians. There's Methodists, Episcopalians, Baptists. Right. And I can tell you, as being in the Bible Belt, there's a lot of Baptists. And the Baptists, I know quite well because I have a very good friend who, who is one, who Ari also knows, Joe. And um, the ones that are educated, that have, that, that have studied the Bible, they, they study the entire Bible, okay? But a lot, a lot of Christians only study the New Testament. They have no... Um, idea that everything that's in the New Testament is based on what's in the Old Testament. Yeah. Everything. Every single Good. Yeah, so look. Okay. So, so what I'm saying is they're raised to believe what you're talking about from the time they're very young. They're um, leaders. Okay, I, no, I hear you. I hear and and They, they, they instill that in, in Christian people. Okay, I, I hear you, and, and thank you for sharing your experience. And But I, I want to clarify that this is not about any particular religion. Because you have Jew haters that are Christian, that are Muslim, that are of other religions, that are of no religion, that are atheist. You have anti-Semitism that's predicated on race, on pseudoscience, on, as we'll discuss next week, anti-Israel um, hate and criticism, and based on no reason at all. So I, 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 th th this is but perhaps one manifestation of what is at its core a much larger problem. I think we do a disservice if we position it as a very particular unique problem that's emerging in a very specific subset of individuals raised in a very specific way with specific teachings or lack of teachings. This is anti-Semitism is much broader than a very small slice in time, even in this time that we're in right now. Anti-Semitism has been around since time immemorial has been around since before Christianity, and it's consistently been contradictory and absurd. So my point is like this. My point is not to identify a specific 
expression of anti-Semitism as much as it is to say that anti-Semitism is so completely absurd and illogical that it's actually crazy, right? It's Meshuggah that, 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 that it exists. But, but this is what we got. I mean, this is where we are. This is what we got. And, 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 and uh, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with, at its core, an absurd hatred. Tom. Since Marr coined the word anti-Semitism in the late 1800s, is it really helpful for us to apply Jew hatred back in the first century and throughout history with the word anti-Semitism? I agree with you. Yes. All its Jew hatred, which which received a new phrase or term by an anti-Semite in the 1870s. And if we did that, I think we would not label everything that happened as anti-Semitism any more than we would label what happened as a pogrom. There are specific characteristics, and yet there have been governments against Jews since the time of government. I think we lend ourselves to getting better approach to this eternal hatred if we don't label everything in the terms that is an anachronism for the first century. Yes, excellent, excellent point. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, 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 I realize when you say this that I, I didn't finish where I was going with this, which is to say that using the phrase anti-Semitism is actually not so precise it actually lends credence to what we don't want to lend credence to in the first place, which is as an ism, and it works against against what we hopefully are trying to achieve in this. It's Jew hate. It's evil and hateful Jew hatred. That's what it is, which has been long-standing and 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 contradictory, a paradox inside a conundrum, inside a riddle. Doesn't make any sense. And this is where we're at. But I think. I think that, that, not I think, I agree with you. The reason why we're using the word anti-Semitism and why the course is called Outsmarting Anti-Semitism, I believe, is just because that's, what, that's the word that everybody knows. I personally prefer the language that you said and that you suggested. So that's, that's my personal take. Rose, uh, jump in, yeah. Rabbi. Mike, uh, yeah. What I'm, I guess what I'm missing here is this, and, and something that Tom just alluded to, and that is, we, we've, you've talked about this as a, a, not a religious issue. It was before religion. It sounds as though somebody decided, we're going to hate this group of people, and we got a lot of reasons we can throw up to everybody for it. So my question is, the, the, the real, I think the real gut is, why us? Yeah. Why, what happened? Why us? Uh, we were nobody. Right. We were nothing. Right. Why us? Mike, you ask the million dollar question, and in fact, you couldn't have asked it at a better time because that's literally the next part of the conversation is now that we've established that all the, the so-called reasons are baba mices, it's all lies. The reasons are contradictory and absurd, right? But now the question is, Sanu, so, so why'd they pick on us? Why the Jews? Why hate the Jews? Right. Sure, it's absurd and irrational. But how did the Jews get roped in on this? That's your question. My, that's my question. That's your question. That should be our next question. Right. How did we, how did Jews get roped in on this? Of all the people who could be hated irrationally and absurdly, and by the way, there are many. 
that have been over the years hated absurdly and irrationally. I don't know if as many, if, if any other group has been hated consistently for as long a period of time in various circumstances for various alleged rationales than the Jew, but it's not a contest, certainly. But the question is for the Jew, at least. We can ask questions about others, but the question for the Jew is, how did the Jews get, get roped in? So I want to be very clear as far as the next part of our session, next part of this lesson. All of these theories that I'm going to offer now about how do the Jews get involved in this, in this hate, be, be the, uh, the, the, the target of this hate. All of these theories are only going to reinforce what is, what should be, and what will be our central idea of the class, which is the issue with anti-Semitism lies not in the one being hated, but rather lies in the one doing the hating. I'm going to say that one more time. The issue, the problem with anti-Semitism lies not in the one being hated, but in the one who's doing the hating. So as we talk about how, why the Jew, how did, we get, how did the Jews get involved in this, roped in on this hate, let's understand that we're not blaming the victim. We're going to be putting the responsibility of the hate and the problem solely with the hater, solely with the one who's doing the hating. So let's talk about now theories of anti-Semitism. This is not rationales of anti-Semitism from the anti-Semites. These are theories as to how, why the Jews got chosen, if you will, to be targeted for the state. I want to begin with Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, a blessed memory. Rabbi Sachs, prolific orator, prolific writer. Anyone who's ever read or heard Rabbi Sachs knows this with firsthand um, experience. There's a quote here that is very telling in the context of our conversation, and I'm going to share it with you right now. This is going to be text number eight. Rabbi Sachs is going to give a number of explanations or speculations as to what the real reason of anti-Semitism, the, the real heart and soul of, of Jew hatred actually is. So here we go. There's been an almost endless set of speculations about what the cause of anti-Semitism actually is. Take a look at the, at the ideas here. And, and, and I want you, as I read this, and as you read this also, as well, I want you to think about which ones resonate with you. Some have seen it in psychological terms. Displaced fear, externalization of inner conflict, projected guilt, the creation of a scapegoat. So that's like a psychological rationale or, or, or um, impetus for the, for the Jew hatred, for anti-Semitism. Others have given it a, soci a socio-political explanation. Jews were a group who could conveniently be blamed for economic resentments, social, unrest, social, social unrest, class conflict, or destabilizing change. Okay, so that's a socio-political angle. Yet others view it through the prism of culture and identity. Jews were the stereotyped outsiders against whom a group could define itself. So how do you know who you were? You weren't Jewish, right? You're not the Jew. Okay, so the, the, the Jews were othered. Yet others, noting the concentration of anti-Semitism among the very faiths, Christianity and Islam, that trace their descent to Abraham and Judaism, favor a Freudian explanation in terms of the myth of o Oedipus. We seek to kill those who gave us birth. It would be strange indeed, says, concludes Rabbi Sachs, if so complex a phenomenon did not give rise to multiple explanations. That's the way he concludes his little uh, tour throughout the, the 
what the philosophers and the, uh, the experts or the thinkers think about why the Jew. How did the Jew get roped in? So again, we have the psychological angles of uh, displaced fear, externalization, projection, etc. Scapegoating. We have sociopolitical explanation. When things go bad, we have um, a, a group that we can uh, blame conveniently. Um, culture and identity. The Jew is different culturally and, and, and on an identity level than, than the other nations the host nation, if you will. Um, it could be a faith-based, right? The Jews spawn Christian, Jew, Judaism spawns Christianity and Islam. So try to, so, so get rid of the parent, get rid of the, get rid of the one who gives us birth. And uh, these are some amongst many that, that Rabbi Sachs shares. So I, I, you know, I, I don't really necessarily want to engage in a conversation, which one do you prefer, which one do you like, and, and explain why you like it. Although we could, have, if we had more time, maybe we, you know, we would engage in a nice conversation about you know, which ones you prefer. But these are amongst many. These are, these are some of the theories. And, and, and they, don't, they don't justify anti-Semitism. No, 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 no. They don't justify anti-Semitism. And I said this before, before, we, before I, I read this text. All of these are... Theories that reinforce the central idea that the issue with anti-Semitism has nothing to do with the Jew. It has to do with the one who's hating, who's doing the hating, right? It's your projection. It's your guilt. It's your um, misplaced anger. It's your trying to blame someone for something going wrong with you. It's you who is um, uh, tr uh, um, trying to identify yourself by what you're not. You're not. It, so all of this stuff is, it, all of it hangs, if you will, on the one doing the hating, not the one being hated. I want to segue from these multiple explanations into an explanation that's, or, or perspective, maybe that's a better word, a perspective, because explanation sounds like we're justifying it, a perspective given by the Talmud. The Talmud, that ancient grand work of many, many volumes of Jewish law and ethics and Jewish values. So the Talmud actually deals with the rationale, the psyche, or the soul of anti-Semitism. What's the soul? And I know I'm using the word anti-Semitism, but I, as I mentioned before, it's just a word of convenience. I don't mean it in the hateful way or in the incorrect way. It's just the word that we're using for the sake of uh, colloquially. It's, 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 what, it's what many of us are used to. So the Talmud deals with the soul, the psyche, of this type of hate, of Jew hatred. What drives it? What drives it? The Talmud, I'll give you the context. The Talmud is talking about the story of the holiday of Purim. The story of Purim, the story of Esther, Mordechai, Haman, Achashverosh. So what's going on? So we mentioned this last week. Let me reset it. Time period. The 70 years between the first holy temple and the second holy temple. So the first temple stood for 410 years and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. It lay in ruins for seven decades until it was rebuilt, and ultimately it was rebuilt bigger and better than the original, and the second temple lasted for 420 years, ultimately being destroyed by the Romans, the Roman Empire in the year 69 of the Common Era. In those 70 years, in that gap between Temple 1 and Temple 2, that's when the story of Purim takes place. And who ruled the land? Who ruled that entire area of the world? The Persian Empire. The Assyrians were followed by the Babylonians, which were followed by the Persians, which were followed by the Greek, followed by the Romans. 
The empires shifted, world powers kept on moving around, different nations took over, different empires reigned. That's the way it worked back then. So this was the time of the Persian Empire, and the king, his name was Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus. Well, the story goes that his highest, most trusted advisor, Haman, or Haman, let's call him Haman, Haman goes to the king. This is recounted in chapter 3 of the book of Esther. So Haman goes to the king, and he says to the king, he comes to the king with boatloads of cash. He comes with gelt galore. Sorry for mixing holidays, Purim, Hanukkah. Okay, he comes with gelt. And uh, he shows up to the king, and he says to the king, I have a proposition. I'm going to give you the money that I have here, tremendous amount of money, and I want you to stamp and approve my idea. What's my idea? My idea is I want to get rid of the Jewish people. I want to kill all the Jews, men, women, children, old, young, everyone in the middle. Everyone, should, All the Jews should be wiped out, annihilated, God forbid, in one day by our citizens and the army. And to, to grease the wheels, here's money. What does the king say, famously? The king says, no problem. You want the Jews gone? Sure, do whatever you want. About the money, I don't need your money. I don't need your money. Keep your money and do whatever you want with the Jews. So Haman offered him money, and he says, keep the money. Do whatever you want. Keep the money. Get rid of the Jews. I don't care. The Talmud jumps in. The Talmud gives an analogy. The Talmud gives a parable. It says, what kind of relationship is this? Why does Ahasuerus refuse the money? Why does he take the gelt? He's being offered money. Why, why does he refuse? I don't, want, I don't want the money. The Talmud gives an analogy. Listen to this. Let me share my screen with you, and let's do this inside. By the way, if you've taken other courses with me before, you, this might sound familiar, but we're going to have a bit of a twist today. Okay? Talmud Tractat Megillah 14a says the following. We can use a parable to gain insight into the respective positions of Ahasuerus and Haman. That's the king, and that's the advisor, right? They are similar. Listen to this. They are similar to two individuals, one of whom has a tall mound in his field, extra dirt, whereas the other has a ditch in his field, too little dirt. The owner of the ditch mused to himself, Ah, I wish I could buy the tall mound to fill up my ditch. The owner of the mound said to himself, Ah, I wish I could purchase the right to dump my mound into his empty ditch. Not long afterward, the two met. The owner of the ditch said, Sell me your mound. The owner of the mound said, Take it for free or do me a favor. So that's the Talmudic, that's the Talmudic parable. Does that make sense? Yeah. In other words, the Talmud is giving an example of a win-win, right? It's a win-win scenario. You have one guy, imagine, imagine one guy, person A, has a hole in his backyard, a massive hole. All he wants is dirt to fill it up. He can't do anything. I mean, he was planning on building a pool, but then he realized he doesn't want a pool, so now he's got to fill it back up, right? So he needs dirt. He's in the market for dirt. Now, the other guy, person B, he's got a bunch of dirt that he wants to get rid of because his kids can't play catch in the backyard because they got this big mountain of dirt. So what happens? So one guy wants to buy the dirt. One guy wants to, to buy the space to put his dirt. They meet. And one guy says, sell me your dirt. He says, sell you my dirt. I was going to pay you to take my dirt. You know what? Take it for free. It's a win-win. Does that make sense? 
Yes? So the same thing is the, in the analog, right? The same thing in the analog. Haman and Achashverosh. Haman says, let's get rid of the Jews. I'll give you money. Achashverosh says, give me money. I was looking to get rid of them anyway. Done. Win-win. Simple? Yeah, the Talmud's simple. Not so fast. The Rebbe asks a question. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, blessed memory, asks the following question. He says, what's going on? Who's the, who's the ditch and who's the mound? Who's the ditch? Every word in Torah is precise. Every word in Talmud is precise. The Talmud says that these two characters, Haman and Achashverosh, are likened to the ditch guy and the, and the mound guy. Who's the ditch and who's the mound? The ditch guy is Haman. The ditch. And the mound guy is Achashverosh. So the ditch guy says, sell me your mound. I'll give you money for the mound. You give me money, take it for free. Okay. So the question though is, how is Haman, what does it mean that he has a ditch? What kind of ditch? Ditch means he wanted to fill up something. He didn't want to fill up anything. He wanted to get rid of the Jews. The, the, the more precise analogy would be two people had a mound of dirt, right? Two people had a mound, and they each wanted to get rid of it, and they both figured out a way how to get rid of their mounds of dirt, or they both realized they had the same mound of dirt that they wanted to get rid of. What's the ditch? In other words, bottom line is, What's the ditch in this analogy? What, what, what is, what's the ditch or the analog? So to cut to the chase, if, if the question is not resonating, don't worry about it. Here's the explanation. With, with or without a question, here's the angle on it. There's two types of anti-Semites. Two types of anti-Semitism. Two types of Jew hatred. There's the Ahasuerus type and the Haman type. What's the difference? The king, Ahasuerus, he's got the mound. He looks at the Jew and says, uh, I don't get you guys. Like, everyone else is one way you guys are sticking out. Like a mound of dirt. You guys are like, you do your own thing, you have your own customs, tradition, holidays, Shabbat, Rosh Hashanah, every other day it's a holiday, you're kidding, you gotta take off from work again. What is this, right? What's going on over here? You guys are different, just, just different. He's like, I don't know, these guys are different, it's like this mound. Everyone's the same. There's like a flat yard, and then boom, this mound sticks up out of nowhere and gets in the way. Does he hate the Jew? No. Would he, would he otherwise like, want to destroy or get rid of the Jew? No. Not per se. All right? not, it's, not, it's not his agenda. But he doesn't get the Jew either. Okay, that's one guy. That's one type of persona. And what's the other? This is the real anti-Semite. This is the real Jew hater. That's the guy with the ditch. That's Haman. It's very different. To Haman, the very existence of the Jew doesn't seem extraneous or different or weird or other. The very existence of the Jew makes Haman feel empty inside. The ditch is emptiness. The ditch is an absence. To the Haman persona, the very reality of the Jew symbolizes a conscious, symbolizes morality, symbolizes ethics, symbolizes Ten Commandments, symbolizes Torah, symbolizes God. And that bothers Haman. Haman would like to live his life in the fast lane, doing his thing without any reminders of deeper truths or deeper responsibilities. To the Haman, 
looking at the Mordechai, looking at the Jew every single day, drives him bananas and makes him feel like, feel guilty for what he's doing, make him feel like he should be doing something else, and he doesn't want to feel that. He doesn't want to feel that emptiness. So what's the solution? Instead of, yeah, instead of addressing the root and living a meaningful life, so what's his solution? Get rid of the reminder. Get rid of the Jew. Are you with me on this? This is the way the Rebbe explains the Talmudic parable of Haman and Achashverosh. So Haman, who can't, he literally cannot sleep at night with the existence of the Jewish people in the world. He cannot live knowing that these people exist and are making him feel less than not good or whatever it is. He can't take it. He's got to get rid of them. So he goes to the king. He says, the king, I, I need to get rid of them. The king says, sure, I don't know why they're here anyway. I got this mound. I don't, I don't, I don't know why they're here. What do they do? They're not like us. They're different. These are the two types. It all, you, the, the first type, the Achashver, the mound, is not going to go kill the Jew. But when the other one says, we got to get rid of the Jew, they are the, what's the word I'm looking for? They are the, um, not collaborator, they are the, enabler. say it again? Enabler. The, the enabler, the site. They're the participator, but they're the ones that will, you know, not mind if their Jewish neighbors are gone. You with me on this? Right? Not everybody was a Nazi. Right? Not everybody was a Nazi in Germany and Poland, whatever. But there were plenty of people who didn't mind if their Jewish neighbors were gone. Jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah. So Haman drives it. Akashverosh is okay with it. And no money needs to exchange hands. This is the way the Rebbe explains the Talmudic analysis of the psyche and the soul of certain Jew hatred. What's, what drives it? The sense of absence. Just to, just to, uh, to highlight this from the actual text of, this, of the book of Esther. This is, to me, this is like, it's really powerful. Take a look at the following text. This is going to be text number 10. Chapter 5, Esther. Take a look. Haman told them, his family, um, about his no, 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 hold on. Um, Haman told them. Who's them? Okay, I don't remember. Haman told some people about his magnificent wealth and his many sons and how the king had promoted him and advanced him above the other officials and royal court, courtiers. What's more, said Haman, Queen Esther personally prepared a feast and besides the king, she did not invite anyone but me. And tomorrow, too, I am invited by her along with the king. So Haman is bragging about his greatness. But look what he concludes. But all this means nothing to me each time I see Mordechai the Jew sitting at the palace gate. You kidding me? You're living the dream, Haman. Bro, you got a pastry named after you. Okay, wait, that happened later. Haman, you're living the dream. You're living the dream. That's Hamantash in reference, right? You're living the dream. You got a family. You got kid, wife and kids. You have a great job. You've climbed the corporate ladder. You're making coin. Dude, you've got it all. You got respect. You got money. You have honor. You have the mishpacha. What's the problem? What's the problem? He's got it all, but he's miserable inside. He can't live with himself. And who does he blame? Blames the Jew. Blames the Jew. The Jew represents a higher calling. Even if the individual Jew says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't do any of this stuff. It doesn't matter. The Jew represents, the Jew is a symbol 
of Torah, of Ten Commandments, of morality, of, div of divine morality on earth. That's what the Jew symbolizes. What, you think Hitler cared how religious the Jew was? Yeah. You think Haman cared how observant, you know, oh, did you uh, uh, bless the new moon on Saturday, last Saturday? Did you say the prayer? You think Haman cares? Are you kidding me? Haman doesn't care. Haman, to Haman, the, 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 the existence of the Jew is problematic. Problematic because it hurts him. Now, is this the only reason, or is this the only, not rationale, is this the only, you know, uh, psyche of, of antisem? No, of course not. This is one, though, that the Talmud highlights from the story of Purim, from the story of the book of Esther, the Talmud kind of puts Haman and Achishverosh on the couch and says, if we're analyzing them from the story, Haman can't live with himself vis-a-vis -vis the Jew. He's got it all, and yet the Jew bothers him? Haman doesn't do anything. Uh, sorry, Mordechai is not harming Haman. Haman can't live with himself when he sees the Jew. Why? It's his issue. By the way, that's where we're going with this. Who's, who's, like, who's got the issue? Mordechai or, or, or Haman? Haman's got the issue. It's Haman who's got the issue, right? So the, the Talmud puts Haman on the couch, and Achashverosh on the couch. Achashverosh, you know, he just signs off on it. He doesn't care. All right, yeah, Tom. In verse 10 of Esther, it says that Haman sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh and told them. Mm. So it's friends and his wife. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for the them. So who's the them? His wife and his friends. So he was telling them about his kids, about his job, about his fame, about his wealth. But I can't, he says, but none of it means anything. As long as Mordechai the Jew is still sitting there. <laughs> Enjoy life, bro. Enjoy it. You got it. You got it. You're living the Persian dream. You got it, right? The Persian dream. You could be on like a reality show, right? Like Persians got talent or something. I don't know. You, you're living the dream. And what's the, you can't, well, you, the Jew? What is this? Adina Manko. Oh, but Haman um, didn't like Mordecai because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. Yeah, true. True. Why does that bother him? He has, imagine, he has millions of people bowing down to him and one Jew doesn't? Who cares? What, his, his ego is bruised? Well, he doesn't have enough self-esteem? I mean, like, so I hear what you're saying, but this is the way the Talmud explains. The Talmud um, gives the parable of the ditch and the Rebbe explains why the ditch. It must indicate that there's some lack of, some feeling of, of, of emptiness that he is associating and blaming the Jew for, right? Blaming the Jew, and that's it. Here's the point. I'm not trying to advocate any one rationale. I'm not saying that the Talmud's rationale, as explained by the Rebbe, is the only reason at the core for anti-Semitism. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the Talmud, as the Rebbe explains, is giving one angle on it. Jonathan Sachs gives multiple angles on what might be projected this and projected that and distorted this or the other. Either way, here's my real point. This, and I told you before I said all this what my point was. My point is that anti-Semitism is the anti-Semite's problem. It's not the Jew's problem. In other words, it's nothing... We're not doing anything wrong here when I say we. The Jew is not the one who's doing anything wrong. And this is a major idea that I feel, no matter how many times I emphasize it, I, I don't know if I'm going to do justice to this idea. That's how big this is. And I want to give you an example. If you're not sure what I'm saying even, let me give you an example. Let's talk about a bully. A bully. The bully 
picks on the kid, picks on the victim. You know what the worst thing the victim could do? I don't know. One of the worst things the victim can do? Blame themselves. If I only didn't do this, that, or the other, I wouldn't be picked on. That's not. The issue is not with the victim. No one should blame the victim, let alone the victim blaming themselves. Are you with me on this? Let's be very clear here where the problem lies. The problem lies not in the one who's being victimized. The problem, the entire problem lies in the one who's victimizing. The problem lies with the bully, with the hater, with the anti-Semite. It does not lie with the victim. It's a major psychological spin and further victimization or a sign of further victimization for the victim to start feeling the blame for being the victim. Are you with me? That's like the abu there's an abuser and one who's being abused. And the one who's being abused feels like they're bringing it on themselves. Right? They're to blame. They're the one that's at fault. If only I didn't do that thing wrong, I wouldn't be abused. That we know, we know that that's an incorrect way of looking at things, correct? That's an incorrect way of looking at it. That's not true. It's not true. It's incorrect. And it's unhealthy. I'm not judging now. I'm blaming the one who feels the self-blame. Right? I'm not, I'm not ascribing now further harm and, 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 and um, whatever. But my point is simply, it's not, it's not true and it's not a healthy approach. The healthy approach is, let's have very clear who's at fault and who's not. The, the one who is hating, the one who's abusing, the one who's victimizing, the one who's bullying is the problem. The victim is being victimized. They're the victim. They're not the problem. It's like gaslighting. Gaslighting is you, 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 you abuse the other and then you make them feel like they're at fault, like they did something wrong. It's like it's, 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 it's heaping abuse on top of abuse. It's heaping bullying on top of bullying. It's heaping hate on top of hate. It's getting into the head of the victim and making them feel like they're responsible. Why am I saying this? You might know why I'm saying this, but I'll say it clearly. After centuries of anti-Semitism, the problem is that Jews feel like it's our fault. Like we did something wrong. Like if only we did this, that, or the other. And, and you know what Jews say? I know some Jews, so I know what Jews say. I'll tell you what Jews say. If only we didn't stick out so much. If only we weren't so out there as Jews. If only we assimilated a little bit more. If only we weren't so different. If only, 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 only. If only we criticized our own a little bit louder. If only we didn't show allegiance with other Jews. Are you with me on this? You know what all that is? You know what all of that is? All of that is pointing the blame of anti-Semitism where? Inside. And that's wrong. It's not true. And it's harmful. And it's further abuse on top of abuse. And we have to call a spade a spade. If God forbid someone came to you, someone who is being abused came to you in a relationship, someone came to you, and, and oh, poured out their heart and said, this is what's going on. You would never dare to say this is your fault. You would never dare to say that. And if they blame themselves, you would, with love, you would cry bitter tears and hug them and tell them, no, 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 this is not you. But Jews do this all the time. Anti-Semitism, it's our fault. It's our fault. If only we did this or didn't do that or the other. Yeah, it's our fault. Jonathan Sachs, text 11. Take a look at one of the most powerful texts you'll ever hear about this. Jews must fight anti-Semitism, but never 
internalize it. And that is easier said than done. If you are hated, it is natural to believe you are hateful, that the defect lies in you. It rarely does. Hate exists in the mind of the hater, not in the person of the hated. Jews have faults, and Judaism is a religion of self-criticism and repentance, but those faults have nothing to do with those of which they are accused of, sorry, but those faults have nothing to do with those of which they are accused by their enemies. Anti-Semitism tells us about anti-Semites, not Jews. If that's the one line you remember from tonight's class, remember that line. Anti-Semitism tells us about anti-Semites, not Jews. One of the mistakes made by good, honorable, and reflective Jews was to believe that since Jews were hated because they were different, they should try as far as possible not to be different. So some converted, others assimilated, yet others reformulated Judaism to eliminate as far as possible all that made Jews and Judaism distinctive. Again, look at that, look at that line and just read it to yourself a few times. When these things failed, as they did, not only in 19th century Germany and Austria, but also in 15th century Spain, some internalized this failure. Thus was born the tortured psychology known as Jewish self-hatred. So what happens when instead of blaming the anti-Semite, you blame yourself. What happens when instead of pointing the finger at the hater, you point the finger at the hater and you say, oh my gosh, they hate me. What am I doing wrong? Let me be better. Let me be more like them. Let me assimilate. Let me give up my Judaism. Let me convert. Let me water down Judaism. Let me make Judaism more universal and less particularistic. Yeah, you with me on this? Let's make Judaism less Jewish. What could go wrong? We'll make Judaism super universal. It'll sound like everything. Everyone will love us, right? Didn't work. You think Hitler cared? You think in 15th century Spain, he mentions. You saw that line, 15th century Spain? According to many historians, those that converted in Spain in 1492 were still targeted by the Inquisition, not the ones that only were practicing Judaism in their basements. Even the ones that generally converted ultimately were killed. They didn't care. They still were Jewish. So the Jew says, I'm the problem if only I change. And then you realize you can't. You're stuck. And then what? Self-hating. That's even worse. What do you do with yourself? It's a torture. It's torture. You know what the solution is? The truth. The truth. Realizing the truth. The abused, the, the, the victim is not a fault. That's it. That's the truth. Beginning and end. The beginning and end of this, of this conversation. The victim is not the problem. The abuser is the problem. As long as we internalize the hate, we're missing the boat. We miss the point. We miss the whole point. It's not us. It's the hater. It's absurd. It's irrational. You know what happens? Somebody tells you a lie again and again and again. You start believing it. A lie about you. You believe it. Maybe they're right. That's dangerous. It's dangerous. Dangerous to grant anti-Semitism that credence. I mean, we read it before. How absurd. The Jews fatten up Greeks to sacrifice them. That's ridiculous. And yet others we believe. Other tropes, other anti-Semitic tropes we believe. We internalize. And the proof is in the pudding. Anytime a Jew has felt, I need to change. Should we really do a Hanukkah menorah lighting in the public? Yeah, should we really do a public lighting? Maybe that's going to, you know, invoke the hate of the anti It's your fault. It's your problem. It's your problem. 
Yeah, but if we hid it better, they wouldn't hate us so much. Oh, so it's your problem, right? So you're blaming yourself. Okay. You see what's going on here? I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's resonating. It's a big idea. It's a strong idea. I'm very passionate about this idea, as you might, you might have noticed tonight. Um, it lands very heavy. It lands, this, this idea lands very heavy. Because the upshot of this idea is that there's only one recourse. And that's not pretending to be something we're not. That's not hiding in shame. That's not blaming self. It's not watering down Judaism. You know what it is? Standing up tall and proud and saying, this is who we are. This is what we're about. And if you have a problem with it, it's your problem. Because we live in a world today. This is the blessing of the world we live in today. We live in a world that at least says that it respects difference. That at least claims to honor distinction and to honor diversity. And so every other diversity is fine, but we have to feel guilty about being Jewish? Really? Why? Dr. Torsky tells a story. Dr. Torsky tells a story. My grandfather told a similar story. But let's read Dr. Torsky's story inside. Rabbi Dr. Torsky. Text 12. I was once traveling on a bus, dressed in my customary garb, wearing a broad black hat and a black frock coat. Rabbi Torsky, Rabbi Dr. Torsky, was a Hasidic Jew and a psychiatrist and, a ex and an expert in addiction recovery. A man approached me and... A Pittsburgher. A man approached me and said... I think it's shameful that your appearance is so different. There is no need for Jews in America to be so conspicuous with long beards and black hats. I'm sorry, mister, I said to the man. I'm not Jewish, I'm Amish, and this is how we dress. The man became apologetic. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, sir, he said. I did not mean to offend you. I think you should be proud of preserving your traditions. So being Amish is okay, but Jewish is not okay. This is where the self-hating Jew comes in. And I hate throwing around that term loosely, and I'm not, <laughs> try not to because it's been used and abused, that term. But think about it. The Jew who can't stand public displays of Jewishness, but, but celebrates every other public display of uniqueness? Why? Why? The Jew, not, 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 the, not the Gentile. The Jew who can't stand when the other Jew is wearing a kippah outside. Why? Why? Because why are you so conspicuous? But everyone else is fine? Everyone else can, can proudly display who they are, but the Jew can't? What's wrong with this picture? Are you with me on this? The problem lies not with the Jew. The problem lies not with diversity. The problem lies not with pride. The problem lies in our own psychology. That's it. Simple. That's it. Done. And, and I'm not blaming because I understand that it's a tortured existence to be a Jew. It's not easy. Maybe that's a little too strong. It's not easy to be a Jew. It's not easy to be a, 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 an individual in a long line of 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 amongst other things of, of difficult times. It's not easy. But there's only one valid response, and that is to stand up proud and stand up tall and say, I am a Jew, Daniel Pearl. I am a Jew. My father is Jewish. My mother is Jewish. I am a Jew. That's it. End of story. And if you have a problem, that's your problem. It's not my problem. It's your problem. The issue with anti-Semitism is not the Jew. It's the Jew-hater. That's where the issue lies. The absurdity of anti-Semitism lies in the one who holds on to those absurd 
ideas. Let's not blame the victim. Let's not blame ourselves. Let's not blame our fellow Jew. It has nothing to do with the Jew. It's completely on the Jew hater. We live in a world, I'm repeating myself now, we live in a world that celebrates, that puts on a pedestal the notion of diversity and difference. Let's lean into that. Let's be proudly Jewish. One final point, and then I'm going to close out the class. Identifying proudly as Jewish is not just the right thing to do on every level, which we've discussed. It's not only the perfect response to the anti-Semitism, to stand up proud as Jews, saying we're Jewish, we're not going anywhere. But it's also a great way to re-educate the anti-Semite, to almost do the impossible. Let me explain why in 60 seconds. You know what the best antidote to anti-Semitism is? To the anti-Semite? It's to demonstrate to the anti-Semite who knows you. Let's say they, they know you in work. You don't know they're anti-Semitic. They don't know you're Jewish. When you tell that, when you start showing up, maybe a kippah, maybe a Jewish book on your desk, and they know, and you proudly and openly identify as Jewish, they begin to realize that the mensch that they know is a Jew. And that goes, that does wonders for, under, for, for to, to, to lend credence to what a Jew is. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? How did Esther deal with, with the king when she eventually broke the news to her husband? By the way, this is what's going down and I'm Jewish. You know what she says? I'm Jewish. But how did she dispel all the hateful uh, sentiment that, 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 that Haman uh, expressed, that, that Ahasuerus himself carried? How did she didn't address it? She just said, I'm Jewish. What she was telling him is, you love me? You chose me of all the other girls? You know why you chose me? You know why I am who I am? Because I'm Jewish. So you still hate the Jew? Right? I am who I am because I'm Jewish. That's part of my identity. So how could you hate the Jew? You love the Jew. You love me. Right? And I'm Jewish. So when we stand proudly as Jews, when we carry our Judaism on our sleeve, and we're good people, right? Obviously. That, does, that goes a long way in opening up the eyes of many around us that a good person, that, that a Jew is a good person. A good person is a Jew. More than any facts, and any websites, and any rebuttals, living example. A mensch and a Jew. A proud mensch, a proud Jew, goes a long way in organically undoing the very stitches of anti-Semitism. So my friends... In summation, today we've taken a deep dive into the psychology of anti-Semitism. We've seen how anti-Jewish sentiment is as old as it is absurd. We've seen how completely irrational and nonsensical it is. And we've seen how, as with any hate and with any bullying, the problem lies with the hater and the bully, not with the victim. So, let's never grant power to the anti-Semite. Let's never grant validity to the hate. Let's never legitimize bullying. Let's never feel the need to internalize and conform to irrational victimization. Instead, let's heed the call to be positive ambassadors for what it means to be a Jew. Friends, let's resolve tonight, tonight, here and now, to live with potent and powerful Jewish pride. Our positive actions make a difference, and little by little, 
May the hate slip away, replaced by light and replaced with love. And let us say, Amen. Thank you for joining me tonight for lesson number two of Outsmarting Antisemitism. I will stay on board for another few minutes to answer your questions. Um, a few notes, not a few notes, one more point about next week's class. Next week, the topic is the promised land. Much of contemporary anti-Semitism is manifest as antagonism to Israel. How can we counter anti-Israel, sorry, how can we counter Israel-focused anti-Semitism? And why are Jews joining anti-Israel movements? How do we respond to these trends? Join me next week, same bad time, same bad channel, for a powerful conversation about the Jewish relationship to Israel, Israel education, and the nature of Jewish nationhood. You do not want to miss this next week. All right, I'm staying on for questions and comments. Uh, I've seen some comments coming in about the class. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. And uh, remember, the main thing is, tonight's great, but the main thing is living, living proud, living with pride. Okay, questions, comments. There's a famous man, a speaker, who was a, a Nazi demonstrator in, I believe, Illinois. And uh, he was taken, somehow, he accepted an invitation by a rabbi, a firm rabbi, a religious rabbi, an orthodox rabbi, to, to come to see to what, I don't know whether it was a Friday night or a, a, a different celebration, whatever. And he goes, he saw what a Jew really is, practicing Judaism as it should be, and he, he, he's not Jewish, but he's not a Nazi, and he, and he goes around speaking about how he was nice. converted nice. from Nazism. How he, how he lost the hate and replaced yeah. it with love. Is this the guy? We had a guy, we had a fellow, T.M. Garrett, who was there with us? We had him at Chabad, T.M. Garrett? I'm trying to remember his story. I think his story was... waving her hand. Yeah, yeah. I think his story was he had a neighbor who was Jewish and he was going through a difficult time or something. He spoke to the... I forget the story. We have it recorded. Um, and then he spoke to... It and he realized, like, you know, these guys are good guys. Like, what's... And, and that was it. And he... So it sounds like a similar type of story. But yeah, thank you for pointing out that story and, and for reminding me of this story as well. That idea of the experience. But, but here's the key. Like, we could have great experience with somebody who may, be, may harbor inside anti-Semitic sentiments. If they don't know we're Jewish, then, you know, they just, they just know we're a good person. But how much more powerful it is, it, would it be if we also wore Judaism on our sleeve in some way, and then when they associated with us and had those positive associations, they would also connect it with Jews and Judaism. Boom. Now it's, now it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. I don't know if I. This is a this is an anecdote to to. Um, I I don't remember whether I was in high school or college, and somebody yeah. said to me, "Where are your horns?" Can right. You show me. Right. I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, I've I've heard this before. I've heard this before from uh, from a number of individuals that have had this personal experience as well. Yeah, it's wild. I always answer. I keep mine tucked under my kippa. Right? That's a very convenient way to uh, keep them tucked in. For anyone listening, because we have a podcast and these things get posted. Um, just kidding, guys. All right. Just 
Ay, gewalt, gewalt. Sometimes uh, context is important. Um, okay. All right. Good, good. Um, yes. You, with, with the Jewish people being called the chosen people. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think? How does that play into all this? It's a good question. Right. So, so maybe they hate us because of the chosen people. So I, I just want to point out that we have to be careful, in, even in the question, to not point the finger at us and say, well, if only we didn't call ourselves chosen, then no. And I understand that's not what you're asking, but you're asking, like, what does it mean? So my, my understanding of chosen is not better. It's just, it's, it, it means we have a specific mission. Whereas all of mankind, all of humanity, has seven core foundational um, obligations, divine obligations, known as the seven Noahide laws. The Jew has a few more to the tune of 613 total. So the Jew has very unique, a, a very unique practice, very unique rituals, very unique customs, very unique you know, obligations, whether it's uh, unique holidays, whether it's unique uh, daily observances or Shabbat or whatever it is, the Jew has a unique, so chosen means chosen for a specific mission as opposed to better than. So the Jews are the chosen people. Any, any individual, any culture could be called chosen. Chosen for their unique, their unique identity and every culture has a unique identity. I think the cool thing, and I mentioned this before, is that we live in a time, maybe it's unprecedented, it might be unprecedented, I don't know, I haven't lived for all time, so I just know this time. We live in a time where there's an incredible movement to celebrate individuality, to celebrate diversity, to celebrate distinction and difference. It's beautiful, and it's powerful, and it's important that not that we jump on the bandwagon, but we recognize that there's nothing wrong with Jewish difference. There's nothing wrong with being unique and being proud and, and saying, yes, we were chosen for a specific mission, and, and you were chosen for your specific mission. And that's cool. The Bible is the Jewish Bible. The Torah is the Jewish Torah. It talks about the story, the origin story of the Jewish people. So, I mean, others also read it and study it, fine, but at the core, it talks about the B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. That's, that's the... That's, it starts with Adam and Eve, but that's kind of where it heads. The main conversation is about the Jewish people. So, yeah, it makes sense that in that book, you're going to have a lot about the uniqueness of the Jewish people, and that's fine. Every culture has its text. Every culture has its, 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 its origin story, has its, its narrative, and that should be celebrated and studied. Um, yeah. You know... Being, standing up for who we are helps us stand up for the other. I'm reminded of this incredible story. I saw there's a, it's, it's online. You can find, I don't remember who it was, but there was a um, there was a, um, a an elected official in New York in New York City. He got elected. I don't know a, uh, a city councilman or some some sort of city official gets elected. He decides, this is back in, I think, the 60s, he decides he's going to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He's going to go to Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and, and visit the Rebbe, the Grand Rabbi of, of Chabad Lubavitch. Okay? So they have a nice conversation, and at the end, the Rebbe says to him, I want to ask you a favor. So he says in the interview, it's, it's only, you could find it somewhere if I, if I knew the name, I would tell you. Anyway, he says, I thought to myself, all right, here we go, here's the ask, because every, everyone has an ask, right? You, you meet with anybody, they always have, they want a favor. So the Rebbe says, you know, there's, a, there's a, a segment of the city, a certain community, a certain neighborhood of people who are very hardworking, but they're overlooked by the city. They don't receive the, the, the help from the city, and 
their, their challenge that they have, and, and they're being overlooked. And he was referring to Chinatown. So he was referring to the, to, 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 to the Asian population, to the, right, to the immigrant, the immigrant Asian population. And that's what the Rebbe was advocating for. Not for the Brooklyn Hasidic Chabad Jews in, in, in Crown Heights. No, he was advocating for, 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 the, for, for that immigrant community. And the, the reason why I'm mentioning this is simply to say that, that it's, our, it's our pride and our, our valuing our own unique identity that helps us also value the other's unique identity. I mean, if we don't value uniqueness, if we think everything, you know, we should fit in, so then how are we going to value, how are we going to respect someone else's uniqueness? If we think that we shouldn't stand out, so then why should they stand out? It's when we stand up and stand proud and celebrate difference that we can do extend that same gift and that same respect to the other. All right, that's it for me tonight. There's a World Series game to get to. I'm kidding. That's it for me tonight. I don't want to keep you guys too long. Um, I want to wish everybody a good night and Whatever. thank you for joining me. Yes. Um, point of clarification. Yes. To what your mom said, there was a painting by Michelangelo which showed Moshe coming down the mountain. Behind him was like lightning. Yeah. And people took that because I had the same experience. Someone asked me where my horns were. Yeah. In fact, it's right. a sculpture by Michelangelo that has Moses in it. It's carved out of stone, and it has two horns sticking out of his forehead. So, um, or sticking out of his head. So, yeah, that's the depiction. Where does it come from? The Torah says, Karan Arpanov, his face was radiant. But Karan could also be read as Karen, which means horns, so it's a mistranslation. Or maybe Michelangelo thought he was depicting horns of light with those horns. Either way, you're right. That's one of the, uh, the origins of this ridiculous myth. But again, it's, uh, it, 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 it's, it's one of those things. All right, have a wonderful evening. Good to see everybody. Stay tuned for more exciting adventures of learning. Also, reminder, Monday night, this coming Monday night, we have the launch of our new women's course. It's called Well Connected, and you want to be well. Who doesn't want to be well connected? Well Connected, beginning this Monday night. It's a Rosh Chodesh class once a month. It meets for women, by women. Dina Schusterman is teaching. Leah Solish, my wife, is teaching. Join us. More news to come tomorrow in an email. You can check it out on the website, intownjewishacademy.org. I believe it's on the homepage. If not, just click through the live study, and you'll find it in the list of programs. All right, we'll see you all soon. Lila Tov. Take care, everybody.